everybody. Welcome to a French Village podcast. I am Sarah Longwell here with my brilliant friend, Ben Wittes, and we are talking about episodes three and four, Who's Ready to Hang Out in the Woods? It is like outward bound French Village edition. I went, you know, last week when you were like, oh, like this group of guys and like the actor and the woods. And I was like, oh, no, Ben's not going <laughs> to like where we're headed because we're just doing like a lot of hanging out in the woods with well, the actors. But, oh, wait, but <laughs> hang on a second. Like certain things have improved since last uh, time. Marie showed up and was like, boys, hanging out in the woods you know, you got to do it right. And like these guys needed Marie to show up and read them the riot act. And so that happened. And uh, the second thing is they got rid of some of them, you know, uh, and that's that's good. You know, you 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 give some of them to Marquette. Um And uh, the third thing is that, you know, the characters grow on you a little bit. So I'm, I'm yeah. a little softer on it than I was last week. Okay, so I am going to guess. Well, let's talk about who our favorite boys are in the woods, because I have a hard favorite. Uh, and we'll see if our favorites are the same. Um, so who's your favorite uh, boy in the woods? Well, I mean, the whole point of the f- episode four is we're all supposed to be uh, getting kind of into Antoine. Um, there's also the actor guy who I'm still, you know, like, I guess part of the point of one of the scenes in this was like actor guy is supposed to be growing on you. We're supposed to be learning something about the relevance of theater to resistance. Not <laughs> sure I'm so persuaded by that. Um, but, uh, okay. Um, uh, and, you know, Antoine does, you know, swim across the lake where the people are skinny dipping, shoot the German soldiers and steal the weapons. So, you know, there's there's we got to say something for him for that. That's true. Antoine. These are Antoine's episodes for sure. I think, in fact, I think episode three is called A Leader is Born. Yeah. Um, and so I didn't it like is. that title. <laughs> it's a little on the nose for what they're going for. But it's, OK, so. It's a little bit, the whole thing is a little bit direct for French Village. You know, French Village is normally, you know, just shows you what happens and doesn't comment on it. But this is getting a little commenty here. Yeah. You know, it was funny. I watched these episodes the first time and obviously, like, I was just plowing through them uh, before. And so I think as I was, I watched them this time with you in my head of like, maybe this is stupid. <laughs> and, uh, and I was, I, I did, it, it crept into in part because I guess I, um, it's not that it's boring exactly, but it is, they are bored in this, ep- like in these episodes. And so that gives us a little bit of time to be bored with them. Like they're just sort of traipsing, you know, they're like a training uh, with in air quotes where, um, more than anything else, he's trying to keep them distracted and occupied. Uh, and Antoine's genuinely trying to turn them into something approximating soldiers, but they have to do it with like sticks and on very little food and in the rain and in their running in their trousers. Um, and also, 
you know, Antoine's trying to train them to something he knows nothing about himself. Right. <laughs> which is, you know, a little bit, uh, you know, like the blind leading the blind. Um, but I, I think there's probably something to that. You know, you form guerrilla movements in a kind of weird Darwinistic way where, you know, it's not like, you know, it's not like Berio had some great experience prior leading resistance movements, right? He's just like better at it. So he hasn't been caught and killed yet. Um, and I, I think there is, you know, something to that, that the people who are naturally good at it last longer than the people who aren't. Yeah. Um, well, I, can I just tell you, though, who my favorite guy is? Is it the the big dumb one who can cook? Yes, it is. It is. I love this guy. I get points for flagging that. Yeah, that's great. I I am. I love this guy. I loved him the first go round. Um, just because uh, he is sort of big and dumb. He just wants everybody to be happy. I have a very strong bias toward both human beings and characters who like just want people to be happy. Uh, I don't. It's like a bit of a gene that I carry. I think where I just like. I just really want everybody to be okay. And it's so, like this guy is 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 cooking for people. They have nothing to eat, just the way that everybody else on the show eats soup. These guys only get to eat chestnut mash. Uh, and so just the the guy who is taking great pleasure in figuring out how to like find herbs to make the chestnut mash tolerable uh, to me is great. Um, also, there's the part I just it's like facial expressions. He's got a very expressive face and when um when the actor guy is putting on a tough guy act after the skinny dipping shooting the german incident and he's saying like if you tell anybody we're gonna come to town we're gonna kill you and your family and your children and like everyone you know he's doing this like um uh kaiser soze level like intimidation <laughs> and terry's just eyes get really big listening to his otherwise gentle theater friend threatening these women he's just he's a great person to have around um and i love him very much it's nice to see him well uh he and that's a, a lot of affection expressed for a guy with about eight lines in the two episodes <laughs> combined <laughs> I mean, he he gets he gets more he gets more time uh, over time. So it's I have spent a first round with this guy, and I'm just sort of happy to see him again. Uh, but you're right, he's not getting so much play. But but the beginnings of him are there, uh, and and it, it, I'm just reminded of his early days where he's you know all he wants to do is figure out a good way to to cook, and he's on everybody's side. He's just on everyone's side. He wants everything to be okay. Doesn't want anyone to fight. I like him. All anyway, right. we're pro. Anyway, anyway. Uh, so, so I will say there's, it's tough. Um, I was watching these two episodes thinking there's only so much happening in these episodes. In fact, most of the action takes place in like the last 10 minutes of the second episode. Um, because the first episode and much of the, rest of the of, of episodes three and four of, of episode three and then episode four are really just these guys trying to figure out how to live in the woods figuring out how to move around and uh existing and basically there's a month that goes by you you're with them in the third episode 
as they kind of come together as a group, um, they do, they kick out a couple of, or not, they don't really kick out a couple of guys, The guys decide to leave. They don't want to be part of the resistance because that's kind of the upfront conversation is that there is an interesting philosophical discussion that ends up being really substantive about what they're going to do in the woods. Are they going to be resistance freedom fighters that sort of join up with Marie and her crew or are they just guys trying to avoid the forced labor and hanging out in the woods to, you know, wait everything out? And Antoine wants a cause and these other guys just wanted to be in the woods. And so they they break up. Yeah. I mean, it, look, there are more than one reason to run away in the woods when you're when you're country is overrun by Nazis, right? One is that you want to kill some Nazis, the sort of Quentin Tarantino uh, version. The second is that you just want to avoid them and you want to avoid getting shipped off to Germany to slave labor camps. Uh, these, you know, people uh, were you know, both are perfectly good reasons, you know, and uh, these guys uh, stole from the wrong farmer. They stole from a farmer who was, they thought, dealing with the Germans, but is in fact dealing with the Germans to spy on them and is in fact an agent of Marie. Um, and he... Uh, reports to Marie that they're there and she comes and basically says to them, hey, if you want our support, if you want uh, to have anything to, you know, any chance, uh, you got to basically be part of us. And this divides them, uh, although most of them follow Antoine. Uh, who is definitely looking for a cause. He's a, you know, rebellious, anti-authoritarian 21-year-old who's kind of chafing at Schwartz's direction and, uh, frankly, complacency. And he's looking for this sort of thing. And I, I think that's, you know, that's what, you know, all violent movements are made of, right, is some combination of righteous indignation and people who are looking for causes and, you know, people who are willing to suffer the privations of life in order to make themselves feel like their lives mean something. And, you know, this is a super good example of that, right? I mean, and and the French resistance was, and not just the French resistance, I mean, the French resistance is one of the more celebrated because, uh, you know, the French have really valorized it over time, but there were similar resistance movements all over Eastern Europe, all, you know, partisan movements in, in Italy and, and elsewhere. Um, and, you know, the force of the violence of the Nazis really uh, and their collaborationists wherever they went uh, really drove people uh, into the hands of of the Maries of the world. And, uh, you know, 
in a different environment, Antoine is just the junior partner of a sawmill, uh, the sort of assistant to the head of a sawmill. But you, you know, you give him the choice, slave labor, hide in the woods without resistance or hide in the woods with resistance and this uh, 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 amazingly attractive uh, uh, resistance figure in Marie. And, you know, calisthenics seemed like a pretty good option. Yeah, I mean, at some point they actually say, I can't remember if it's in these episodes or in the ones before. uh, Oh, it must be in these because this is the first time he really talks to Marie. I think it's in their first conversation where... um, there's a discussion about like, what are you going to do with the fact that it's about to get cold and it's going to be months. And there's this, like, you have to give them a cause. Like people will only do, or, and, and maybe she's talking about like that, like herself and her people, how they've done it so far. Um, but the idea of having a cause, it, it, it actually psychologically to me makes a ton of sense to say that you will endure something in a different way, if you believe your cause is just and righteous and you're and, and you're invested in it, than if you are just trying to survive uh, and it's just kind of a grueling slog um, until, you know, the allies invade. But the the having purpose to me, actually, even though you're con- the, nothing about the conditions is different, just the way your brain is thinking about it is different, makes a world um of difference in, in how you are just approaching your life at that point. I, I think that has to be right. It's, um, I mean, if you think about, um, I mean, it's another way to say morale, right? And mm-hmm. armies with morale, with good morale, consistently defeat armies with less good morale, right? And, you know, you have a... Um, uh, you know, people who have good morale in treatment for serious diseases do better than people who don't. Um, like, attitude matters. And uh, I think, you know, this is a woman who uh, has uh, lost um, a lot. You know, she's shot her own husband. Uh, query whether that's such a great loss. But her kid is in... Uh, you know, is in custody and has been shot. She's uh, lost comrades. Uh, And, you know, that stuff really gets to you, uh, particularly if you don't, can't tell yourself that you really believe in what you're doing. And the cold is just one manifestation of of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, Okay, well, I I don't know that so much happened in the woods that we need to blame it. There's a lot of, so you you get mostly woods, but then you get the the ambient scenes. Yeah, the ambient scenes, which are sort of small, but but then that's like where a lot of the action is. Uh, And so Hortense uh, goes on a bit of a uh, a quest on behalf of uh, Miller, who is experiencing it is. I'll just say, much like children, Miller's pain did disappear for a couple seasons uh, as a plot driver, but it is back. You know, he took a well, he, he had he had a good supply of morphine, and his pain is under control when he has morphine. Uh, uh, now the morphine 
has been cut off and he's uh, in a lot of pain and he's grouchy. But wait, I want to say these two episodes did something for me that no previous episode has done, which is they created a conflict of interest for me in my attitude toward toward Heinrich Müller because he physically assaults Shasanya <laughs> and and stuffs his face in mashed potatoes. And I got to say, I had a, a moment of like, yay, Heinrich. Um, yeah. So I had the exact same reaction uh, to this that you did, which is, and first of all, I remember this scene vividly because it is it is a scene that makes you root for the worst guy because there's like another worst guy. And like, you've spent more time with Mueller and like, you sort of understand all his stuff, whereas Chesonier is so, like, I don't know quite know how to compare. Mueller is a uh, is a psychopath, I think, or, or a sociopath of some kind. Uh, enjoys other people's suffering and humiliation, um, uh, but there's something about Chesonier's like slippery. Uh, oozing way of climbing to the top and of sucking up to everybody. Like the thing is, is like he definitely deserved. And like the way Mueller does it is such a classic kind of for him, which is he begin he like gets Chastanier to lean very close to the mashed potatoes. Where Chastanier's already made it clear he's very proud of these potatoes and the fact that he's been able to procure this meal and he's trying to have this political dinner in which he displays himself as very. Um, very powerful and but he's also always sucking up to Miller and so Miller does this thing where he like gets really close and says look at the mashed potatoes and like creates a, a mini metaphor for a second just to make it seem like it's it's is making you know is making cosmic sense about these mashed potatoes before taking Chassigny's face and shoving it into the mashed potatoes and it's deeply deeply satisfying uh when it happens yeah I mean Miller um so Chassigny uh, represents a category here of of French politicians and climbers, right, who make a judgment. They're probably associated with the French right or far right before the war, but they make this judgment relatively early in the occupation, which was, of course, the wrong time to make the judgment that... Uh, the Germans are going to win. And so they go all in, not just on collaboration, but on fascism, right? They are, and there was a pretty vibrant French fascist movement before the war, um, but you don't have a sense that Chassagne was part of that. You have the sense that Chassagne is kind of an opportunist, but he saw the opportunity with collaboration. These people are sometimes called the collaborationists, you know, people who made a kind of ideology out of the collaboration. They were, uh, they were uh, uh, really, um, you know, big on Germany as the bulwark, no pun intended, against the Soviet Union, against... Uh, and and sort of really threw their weight in with the Germans, and you know Shasanya is a uh, is a representation of that. Um, a bunch of them were executed after the war. Um, a bunch of them were, uh, you know, 
uh, ended up in Germany. Um, I mean, that, that it's a it's a it's a very weird story, kind of corner of of the uh, of this period of French history. But I think the interesting thing about the depiction of him is the contempt that um, that uh, uh, Muller has for him. You know that. So the context of the face mashing into the mashed potatoes is Shisanya wants to is proposing that the Germans create a French Waffen SS, right? That there's actually going to be like a um, a, a French, uh, you know, um, uh, party uh, uh, army. And, um, and Muller is just dripping as an actual, right, SS guy, uh, uh, is dripping with contempt for this. Um, because, of course, the SS is a, is a real thing, right? And you can't, in his view, just snap your fingers and create a French SS. It's a you know the real SS is being uh, uh, at this point defeated in 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 Russia. This at this time is when the last great German offensive in in the Soviet Union happens. The uh, the Kursk offensive, and he refers to that. He says, you know, uh, you know, Shisanya said, yeah, Stalingrad is a is a setback, and he says it's not about Stalingrad; it's about Kursk. And, you know, this is the the German is, again, realizing we are losing this war. And the collaborationist Toady is, you know, still in 1941, 1942, and just wants to sit with the cool kids at the table. Um, and I thought it was a very powerful scene. And he then, you know, stuffs his face in the mashed potatoes, which you know, is, of course, where it belongs. Yeah, uh, you're right that the uh, it, it's very clear and, and it was clear in the other the, the previous episodes, too. Uh, and I don't and the pain is a little bit of a metaphor in some ways and like the running out of morphine for for Mueller that like it's all coming to an end and he knows it like he's got a deal. He is he is living in a reality. And I think just to have this climber toady, as you say, trying to tell him that the reality is different than he knows it is, is like too much for him to take. Right. Uh, and it was, so it was a great, great scene. Um, and, uh, and it, it does, I mean, there's a, there's a scene later too, uh, where, you know, the worst thing for Chasonye is to be humiliated like this. Like he says, uh, you know, um, Mrs. Schwartz, uh, Janine is saying to him, like, let this go. This is like, do not, do not dig in on this. Like this, this is not the guy you want to, you know, tangle with. And he's like, but it was humiliating. And she was like, well, it's not like he's going to tell anybody. Nobody saw it. And he was like, well, you and, you know, Mrs. Larche saw it, Larcher. And well, like the idea, he just, he can't, he can't take the indignity of it and sort of starts ranting about how he's going to, you know, get his revenge, which of course, which of course he does. He does. Well, uh, go ahead. No, I mean, I think so, but 
you know, Shasanya is a combination of a bullheaded moron in that he's, you know, become a zealot for the wrong side exactly as it's losing. But in a short-term tactical sense, he plays his cards very well. Uh, uh, um, Muller needs his, his morphine. And there's this subplot throughout the episodes of, of Hortense trading gu- captured guns on the black market in exchange for morphine uh, for him. And the police catcher, and he lets her go, gives her the morphine, and tells her, next time, don't take such risks. Just come to me. And so she, he has now positioned himself as Mueller's morphine supplier, which is, of course, exactly where you would want to be if you want control over Mueller having been humiliated by him. So Shisanya, in a large sense, plays his cards super badly, but in a short-term sense, uh, it's pretty good. Uh, he's, he's, you know, he's kind of got Mueller where he wants him and Mueller doesn't even know. Yeah. He understands the whole revenge is a dish best served cold. And he's just biding his time and setting up the pieces, uh, to pay Mueller back. Uh, yeah. What do you make of, so I'll tell you with the Hortense, Hortense's whole, I've got to, I'm willing to do anything to, uh, relieve my boyfriend of his pain. And I'm going to, you know, because st- it's weird because, you know, the guns, you see Mueller sort of um, opining about the how great these weapons are. They've been they've been dropped. Right. So people are trying to dro- do drops for the resistance, drop them weapons, apparently Bibles and cookies. Um, but they they go they're going other places. It's funny. You know, I just watched. um I, I had I had had some time alone. My family was out of town for a bit. And what I do when I have uh, chunks of time to myself is I rewatch Band of Brothers. Um, and uh, and it was it's interesting to be both ensconced in our show and then to have sort of the American World War Two story being told. But there's a big um, when they are. uh I, I don't know if it's in the woods of Bassignon, but they're they're at some place they're dug in and the German line is, you know, a hundred yards ahead of them. And they can't and it's the winter and they're like dug in these trenches and the drops, they keep dropping all the supplies to the Germans. And like they just can't get the drops right to land on the actual American side of the line. So they just like keep dropping, you know, food and blankets. Uh, the American uh, Air Force keeps dropping on the Germans. And I was reminded of that in this this because they they just had their their the, um, Barrio is talking about, uh, you know, all we got are Bibles and cookies. He has like butter cookies. Uh, but all the guns basically fell uh, in the wrong spots because of the wind. And uh, and so as a result, Mueller is kind of fondling these pistols um, and talking about what good guns they are. And so ostensibly, he likes these guns enough that it, he will notice that Hortense has stolen them to go trade them for morphine. And the thing about Hortense in these episodes, it's just like when she took the when she swapped out with Sarah, 
where she suddenly decides to do something for somebody else, which is sort of out of character for her. And she approaches it with a total, a, a total zealotry kind of a, a desperation to help someone else that is just always strikes me as like slightly out of character. Again, I'll say the same thing about this that I said about that, which is that she's not doing it for somebody else. She's doing it for herself and for her position. Muller is uh, really grouchy when he's in pain. He's, uh, he's not fun and exciting. He's miserable. Um, and she likes him in his more uh, more devilish mischief persona, uh, which is, you know, when he's feeling good and he can, you know, think about hurting other people. That's the Muller she enjoys. And, um, and also that he thinks about her in those contexts. And so I think he, I think she is an entirely self-serving being and there are times when serving yourself has to be done but like when you have to get back in good with your husband by taking care of her his mistress uh you know that's just what you need to do but it's never about sarah it's never about danielle it's about her mm, that's a good point uh that 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 he probably that that her interest in helping him you know get back to his Evil, evil, virile self uh, is is has a lot to do with yeah her, her enjoying also, him, and also she also understands that the tide of the war is shifting, even if she doesn't admit it or articulate it, and her whole standing in the community, such as it is, is only a function of his being terrifying. Um, you know, she's otherwise she really is a a, con, a a figure of nothing but contempt. The moment he's not, you know, capable of torturing anybody who uh, looks askance at her, and so you know, having him in fighting form is actually important to her well-being. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, let's talk about Marchetti uh, and. What do you think is going on with uh, Raul's girlfriend? Like, is Marquette is is Marquette like keeping her captive? Like, there's this horrible scene uh, where he's like molesting her slowly while he talks to her about mm, I don't know, maybe Raul, maybe spying on on the on people, but he's he's just having sort of a normal conversation. He's already you know to kind of chastise her because the soup's not tasty enough and they have these stilted sad conversations where she clearly doesn't want to be there he clearly doesn't care for her uh so like what is going on Uh, she is a mystery so far he um does not seem to be holding her against her will uh except that she clearly doesn't want to be there but there's no indication that there's forces being used to keep her there. She seems miserable and depressed, uh, and he seems to have no time for her. 
but he does, he has convinced her maybe that he will help Raul if she does what he says. And that starts with the, uh, the fact that she keeps house for him and submits to his molesting her. Um, it also later goes further and he tells her that she's going to have to figure out who Antoine is because they know Antoine's first name. They know there's a group of bros hanging out in the woods on Outward Bound, um, but they don't know who Antoine is and he wants her help in identifying him. But it is completely unclear why she is living in his house and um, and her own uh, who who she understands him to be is pretty opaque as well. Um, she seems concerned at some point when he seems to be in trouble um, or seems to be upset. But in this weird Stockholm syndrome way where maybe you'd be upset if your kidnapper were like miserable. I, I don't know. I, I, I find it very puzzling. Yeah. So what do you think? So my theory is this, and I actually can't remember if this at any point gets explained. Um, I, I, I'm not sure that it does, but my theory is that remember how um, last season she came to pick up, she was the vector of information, right? So she came to pick up her brother from school. Her dad owned the hardware store where she stole the radio, like... Transistor. Yeah, whatever, um, and replaced it. And that gets her in with the cops. And now she's part of this ring to capture the uh, the resistance. And she sells out Raul when he kisses her. Um, but so they were leaving, like the father was pulling the son out of school because they were leaving. So my only thought is that she decided that then they don't show this to us, that she couldn't leave Raul or that she wanted to keep looking for him and that her family went off, uh, her dad and her brother, while she stayed behind because that one kiss from this dumb dude was so that blew the whole thing up was so great um, that she's sort of waiting for him, that the only, and that Marchetti has made some promise or has decided, you know, to said that he could help her. Cause it's, it seems, that seems implicit or that's, you're not, that's explicit in some of what he's saying that like, uh, although he keeps seeing like, are you still thinking about that idiot? Um, like he's vaguely jealous at the same time. It's very clear that all he thinks about is Rita um and is very open about that so like they clearly have this understanding like we're both in this for other people but we are just with each other and for out of some convenience and neither of us are that excited about that um, but there does seem to be some aspect of coercion or abuse to it there does. i mean she's uh she's not uh you know, she doesn't seem like somebody who's in a relationship of convenience. She seems like somebody who's being abused. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I guess what I mean is like she, maybe she came there of her own volition, but like it has it has sort of it has transitioned into a much more abusive. Now she has nowhere else to go. 
she knows nobody else. He knows that, and he's entirely taking advantage of the situation uh, because he he has like this dominating way with her that's very disgusting. Yes, and and also, you know, she's a she's something of a naive uh, who. I mean, there's a scene where he is with all the sophistication of somebody who has rounded up Jews and sent them to their deaths without uh, uh, having any particular personal animosity against them, um, you know, says to her, you know, what's the matter with you? You don't you don't like Jews? And uh, and she responds, well, they killed Jesus Christ. They there's there's they were, you know, bad things were going to happen to them eventually for that. And I think that's, you know, meant to show her as somebody with a a kind of uh, sort of sort of lower class kind of peasant anti-Semitism of a of a sort of unlettered nature. Yeah. Um Absolutely. That that is seen as very telling where like she almost says it without malice. It's just like this is what's been handed down to her as a reason that she accepts without a lot of thought one way or another. Right. Ba- bad things happen to people uh, who, uh, you know, the who who are not right with the church. And and, uh, you know, there's nothing you can do about that. Right. Um and that's you know different. I mean, she's actually not a peasant. She's a uh, she's a, uh, a the daughter of a, daughter. a small business woman, yeah. woman. But but look, Marie is a peasant and has thought more deeply about things than that, um, right? And so you know, I think the the show is is sort of good at showing attitudes that are out there, but also attitudes that. Some people are more able to evaluate critically than others. And I think they're, you know, that there's a decision to portray her as particularly because he's gone from living with Rita, who's quite worldly and um and you know very smart. Um, he's and uh, you know, and lectures him about Scheherazade and the Arabian Nights to somebody who you know, this is part of her kind of the prejudices that she sucked in with her mother's milk. And so I think they're kind of making a point about, about you know, her being, uh, you know, young, uneducated, not very, not very worldly, and him totally taking advantage of that. Yeah. Um, and also we learn in the scene that his son has been born and that his name yes. is David. Which is actually why the subject of his, her attitude toward Jews comes up, because his he says it's a nice name and she says, yeah, it's kind of Jewish, though. Yeah, that's right. Um, and so he, but this is he's sort of staring at, at Rita's picture and aware that his son has been born. But he is aware of that because Shasanya, uh has showed up to... Um, you know, strong arm him with this information to get him to, uh, you know, go after the guys in the woods 
because it is important for his own ambitions that they sort of crack uh, down on these guys and get them uh, and go arrest all of them. And they've been having this fight and Mueller doesn't care about the guys in the woods. They don't have weapons. They're probably starving up there. So like, what's the point? Um, but this is where uh, Chastanier comes and he leverages because Marchetti is in a vice here a bit because the, the Germans have not forgotten that this border guard was shot. Uh, and, you know, uh, Marchetti must have shot him with his gun and then reported his own gun reported missing. Reported his gun missing, yeah. And so the the cops are all sort of saying, like, it's not going to take very long for people to put this together. Lariat seems to have put it together and seems to have dimed him out to Chassinier. Yeah, and they are, um, and of course, Chassinier is, there is nothing he won't exploit. And you know, but interestingly, Marchetti is not uh, a special, doesn't seem especially concerned about getting caught. He, uh, you know, gives it to Lorio and says, you know, do what you need to do with it. Um, I think he's pretty convinced that the cops will protect him or else that he's in this you know, existentialist state where he doesn't care if he gets, you know, he's lost Rita. So, you know, maybe maybe it's time for him to go down for killing the German. Kind of don't think he'll end up there because he's got a self-preservation instinct. But he seems pretty depressed in general. And so he's slumming it with Elian in the meantime. Which brings us back to the boys in the woods. Uh, yeah, you know, I'll just I'll say this for Antoine, uh, who who meets Marie and there's a bit of a kindred spirit thing going on there. And I'll tell you, yeah, that, but he's also totally crushing on her. To- why, who would not crush on Marie? Marie is Marie is the best. Um, and so he but there there is something about Antoine that reminds me of Marie and, and a conversation we had early on about, you know, what are Marie's motivations? Right. Like, where does this thing come from? You just talked about her being, you know, she's a farmer, not particularly sophisticated. So, like, what turns somebody into a resistor versus a collaborator or somebody who's on the collaboration spectrum? And the thing about Antoine, right, is that he's all sort of piss and vinegar and ego, but also his moral compass is like fixed correctly. Like, it's just in the right spot. And uh, the thing that he, you know, he's sort of a pain in the ass, bossing everybody around, playing soldier. Um, but he is also correct. Like he wants to be part of the resistance. He does. Um, yeah, I think the guy who is is selling them out, uh, who, by the way, pay attention to that guy. I missed this the first time he comes back later. And then I couldn't remember who he was. I couldn't remember why he was important because he's not there for that long. Like he only has a couple scenes where he's there in the woods and then he goes goes they leave and the then police Mar- station then he's in the police station and he gives them up and he calls Antoine an anti-nationalist um so just like don't forget that guy um but anyway I I just there is something Marie-ish in Antoine yeah although I want to say there's a that Marie has something that Antoine does not have um which is you know, Antoine is fired up by being 
21 and, you know, he's got an older sister who's married to this, you know, collaboration guy, uh, businessman, right? And who wants to kind of run Antoine's life. And so part of the Antoine thing is he's rebelling against Schwartz. Whereas Marie, Marie had it pretty good. You know, she's got her farm, you know, if she'd quit when she'd knocked off the husband, you know, she she's still got the farm. Um, Marie, like, Antoine's pushed into it by the conscription for forced labor. Marie isn't pushed into it by anything. She's She does it because it's inconceivable to her that she wouldn't help when you know, when people needed help. Yeah. And I do think that's a, uh, that's a higher form of, you know, she just it couldn't like, you know, Decaverne approaches her and says, I need your help. And she's like, okay. <laughs> uh, and that's, I, I, I do think that's the sort of highest and Berio, by the way, the same, um, as much as I didn't like him in the early episodes, they just don't. Um, th- they just do it because they do it, and that's different from Antoine. He's got a lot of the adolescent rage, and I'll show Schwartz. I'll I'll, I'll show the Germans, um, and she's got none of that. Yeah, although I guess I would probably chalk that up to her being twice his age. Like Marie's got to be like forty-two. She's got a son who's you know only a couple years younger than Antoine, and so some of that could just be the the mellowing out uh, of, I can see, you know, looking at Antoine and Marie, I can, I can, you know, I'd, I'd like to, I'd like to equate myself you, you with them. You think Marie is 42? Yeah. Uh-huh. I do. I think she's more like 32. She, the, her kids are born starting when she, she's married off very young. Her kids are born when she's like her older kid, when she's like 17 or something. So maybe she's 34 because he's 17 now. Yeah, I mean, you might be right. I don't know. I can't, I sort of can't come to grips with the idea that she's younger than I am in life. Uh, <laughs> that's very hard for me to, she's got like a grown son. Um, but maybe, maybe, I don't know. I The ages of these people, as I say all the time, totally, yeah, they're, they're totally confound me. Uh, yeah. Totally. It's- but but it does uh, in 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 the woods there it is funny our whole like um, early love like our love uh, romantic interests have all been transported into the woods now where like Schwartz shows up because Antoine's sister is now his wife and uh, and then eventually you know Schwartz's wife shows up to try to get her brother back and uh, and he's mean to her um, and Marie's in the woods and Antoine's crushing on her and when Schwartz sees Marie. Uh, who they have this great conversation in the car where Antoine's like, I saw a girl that was interesting or a woman that was interesting. And Schwartz is kind of like trying to bro out with him and, and have a conversation. And he makes, makes a comment about how like asks if the woman's married and Antoine says he doesn't know. And he was like, well, that doesn't really matter anyway. And Antoine kind of does this. Oh, you would cheat on my sister. And Schwartz is kind of like, Oh no, I wouldn't do that. Obviously. Though I cheated on my wife yeah. with your sister. <laughs> Um, Schwartz would cheat on anybody. Yeah. Um, But 
he yeah he doesn't know that they're talking about Marie and is quite shocked to find out that they are, but never tells Antoine that he actually helped Marie in this role uh, only a few short episodes ago by providing information on the airbase. Um, and so he is like holding out on, on, on Antoine that he's actually an information supplier, at least on an occasional basis to Marie, and, you know, says he's only doing it for her, for her eyes. But, you know, he is um, somebody who's provided information to this cell. Yeah, I mean, his lecturing of Antoine and acting like he's kind of a good, he acts very like apolitical. He says, you know, if you do this, you live outside the law. But like Schwartz has been living outside the law, <laughs> you know, uh, or parallel to the law for quite some time. But, you know, he's very protective. Like, And I'll just say this in terms of the cheating and everything else. Schwartz with this new wife, uh, he is... He is a different, like we are seeing a different version of him these days, which is he's clearly very worried about Antoine primarily because of how it impacts his wife. So he seems to care very much. Um, he doesn't seem to want to do anything to disrupt uh, the dome. He seems very like domestically happy. Um, like he doesn't seem like he is having any other affairs or interested in anybody else. He seems pretty. Pretty domestic I mean, at this point. J- Janine is the second best argument in the show for marital infidelity <laughs> um, after Hortense. Um, and uh, and she's a close second, too. Um, and, you know, maybe we should forgive uh, uh, Schwartz all his, um, all his dalliances just because of the uh, admittedly extreme provocation. Um, that said, um, I do think he shows his hand in that conversation. He really doesn't care if she's married or not. That's just not his, you know, some people care about that sort of thing. Uh, not Raymond Schwartz. Um, so. Yeah. So. Go ahead. But I want to, before we wrap, we got to talk about the skinny dipping scene. Because uh, this is where the whole thing comes to a uh, climax. They are practicing theater at the insistence of the actor dude. Um, Claude. Claude. And one of them uh, comes rushing back excitedly, uh, having seen a a young woman uh, skinny dipping in the pond. And when they go to spy on her, which, of course, Boys in the Woods... Uh, of course, uh, do. Um, they uh, discover that she is actually with a gasp German soldier. Um, uh, what do you make of this scene? Um, well, a couple of things. So one, I sort of didn't know how to, uh, like, you know, you don't, uh, these are boys living in the woods who haven't laid eyes on a girl for a really long time. Um they're behaving probably exactly how boys would. There's also the part of me that's just like, they're all like beating each other up to grab binoculars so that they can like look at this woman who, at least in the beginning of the scene, you think it's like just bathing and having a private moment. And I'm, I'm annoyed with them. Uh, but, but after that, you know, Antoine, uh, 
Antoine sees that the when they see she's with the German soldier, they also see that he has a uniform and a rifle. And for the first time, they have an opportunity for a mission to do something. I mean, the whole point of these two episodes and the guys in the woods is that they're not doing anything real, anything meaningful. And so this is kind of their first test. Um, and Antoine, who has been living in a sweater vest, which I just find to be a, a, a fun detail, uh, it, is asks if anybody knows how to swim because you kind of got to get into the water to get across to get the gun. Nobody else seems to know how to swim, which they should spend some time training on. Uh, but Antoine, like an eel, goes through that water um, only to come up to where the gun is on the rock and see another German soldier and a girl making out slash like doing the thing. Uh, and so Antoine grabs, gets to the gun first. Uh, but the German soldier is also going for his gun and he shoots the guy quickly, like, you know, just as a reflex, he shoots him. And now they've got a problem because they've got a wounded German soldier. And shoots the other one coming out of the water. No, they don't. Well, one of them's one of them's dead and one of them's injured, right? Oh, wait. Or does one of them get away? No, I think. I think. No, no, no. I don't think he gets away. I think one of them's just captured. No, no, but he's captured gravely wounded because that's the that's well, the debate they have. No, I know. You know what? I'm not positive, actually, now that you mention it. Uh, so one of those gravely wounded, I actually thought the other one was just fine. Like, he just takes him prisoner. So I think they have one wounded prisoner and one unwounded prisoner. Huh. I, I thought they killed one and wounded one. But OK, I'm not sure. I'm not he, sure it he, matters. He picks up his gun, shoots the guy, and then turns to the water, because that guy's not armed, and just is like, get out, you know, you're a prisoner. He calls him a prisoner. Okay, okay. And, and so they, so the guy gets out, um, and so, but now, yes, so they've got the two French girls, which they've got to figure out what to do with. They've got the wounded guy, and they've got the prisoner. Um, and they have a, it's a, it's a good, it's a, it's actually, this. the conversation's really important, because it's a moral marker of who they're going to be. Uh, with this wounded guy, are they going to go for a doctor, even though it puts themselves at risk and try to help him? Or are they just going to let him die? And they basically have a conversation in which they say, well, if the Krauts, if the situation was reversed, the Krauts would just like torture this guy and kill him and not care one bit. And Antoine says, that's the whole point is we're not the Krauts. We're do we're, we're different. Um, and so they vote and they decide to go get a doctor. Um, and I, Which is clearly yeah. the right, I mean, the right. the right tactical judgment as well as the right moral judgment. He's much more valuable alive. Yeah, I guess I hadn't thought about it that way, but but true. Uh, and 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 so it, it is, you know, from this scene, both that they are getting closer to having real things happen that they now have to engage in, right? Like they're in it now. This is real. Uh, but also that you're with a group of people who, you know, you can root for because they're going to have their moral compasses sort of pointed in the right direction. Yeah. And I, I think the, that there's a quality to them that is, um, you know, things are going to start happening. You know, the airdrop of weapons fails this time, but there was an airdrop of weapons, Right. You right. have them stealing. At the beginning of the show, there are no weapons. The communists want to kill somebody. They they have to steal a gun from a brothel, and there's nine bullets. 
you know, now <laughs> there's a lot of weapons floating around, you know, and Hortense trades a couple pistols for 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 morphine and you rob a truck, you get some weapons and, you know, you the crowd soldiers go skinny dipping and you get some weapons right there's and the and the allies are dropping weapons and by the way there's a you know the fact that they can do those airdrops is a reflection of the fact that the german uh the luftwaffe just isn't what it used to be and uh by the way is mostly occupied on on the eastern front and so the this is the start, or not quite the start even, but it's this period of really undisputed Allied air supremacy, and that allows them to do drops of weapons when they want to. And so you're all of a sudden in a position where, oh, and they're also, they're not counting the days until Normandy, but they're counting the months. I mean, you know, at one point, she, uh, Marie says, we don't expect an Allied landing until, you know, in this year. But this year is, you know, this is the the summer of 43, or the, the fall of 43, September of 43. And so, you know, 1944 isn't that far away. And they're, they are talking about the day the Allies land. And so, you know, they're actually you know, in a position where they're not just playing a waiting game and a sort of see how long we can survive game. They're really thinking about playing offense. Yeah. Uh, agree. Quick. What's your favorite movie about uh, the World War II uh, air air fights? Wow. That's a, like putting me on the spot. My favorite movie about World War II air fights. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of any air uh, movies about World War II air this, fights? This was a ridiculous question on my part because I only know one and I just brought it up so I could say the one that I know. What, and love. what was the one you know that'll give me time to think more? Memphis Bell is one of my like favorite, uh, most favorite movies. Um, if you haven't seen it, uh, the, the best thing about it. So, you know, it tells the story of um, a bunch of American uh, you know, a crew, an air crew that is about, you, you had to fly a certain number of missions and then you got to be done because you sort of met all the missions. And so, but their last flight, they end up having to do, um, they think it's going to be a nice milk run to France and it ends up being, um, going in, you know, flying over Germany and it's this perilous mission and lots of stuff happens and there's some poetry in it. It's great. Um, young, hmm. young, Eric, I have never seen that. You should see it. The, the, the thing about it is that I love is at the end of the movie, there's a, um, they do the, they do like a postscript words and they dedicate the movie to all of the airmen, uh, from whatever country, from every country. Like they do this thing. that's like, all inclusive of everyone who lost their lives in the war. Uh, and it's, um, I don't know. It gets me every time, gets me every time. Uh, Hey, we just, we missed one plot point that we just have to circle back to really quickly, which is that Lucienne and this young, other young woman, um, are, uh, forming a friendship, a trusting friendship. Um, and Lucienne tells her about Kurt Good idea or bad idea? Do we trust her enough to tell her about the German soldier that is the father of her child? 
Yeah, so Marguerite has definitely insinuated herself into the trust of both Lucien and uh, uh, Berriot, and uh, I am increasingly concerned that she is a plant um, uh, because the uh, film is spending so much time showing how she develops their trust um, that I uh, am very worried for them on this score. Um, uh, Marguerite clearly has some serious backstory that we don't know that she's shown a little part of, but, um, uh, Lucien, uh, admits to her that she thinks about Kurt all the time, uh, which may explain why notwithstanding Berio's, uh, sex lessons, uh, she just, you know, never seems quite as into him as he is into her, which we kind of knew. Um, uh, and, um, uh, I don't know. I have a bad feeling about Marguerite. Yeah. What about you? Well, you know the answer. So. I, I do know. Um, and, but it's, so it's, it's interesting to see the, the buildup, um, and how it's, how it's framed. Um, but you know, I just, uh, wondered if you had any predictions. I like it when you make predictions. Uh, yeah, cause they're always wrong. They're actually, I actually think they're incredibly close. Uh, but I don't know. I thought Schwartz was Jewish. No, that's true. Yeah, that was. I could see that they play with that, though. They like they throw it out there as a possibility. Yeah, I mean, the, the, some other people thought he was Jewish in the show too. So I, I wasn't wrong to fixate on the name, but I did interpret the data wrong. Yeah. So the only thing that I'll say about this, uh, I don't know if it's, I don't know how much of a spoiler it, it will be, but I'll leave you with this, and then you can have Edith take us home, uh, which is that I, in particular. Uh, as I was watching these scenes had a real inkling about what was going on uh, and could read something into it that perhaps not everybody could. I will say that as a hint. Uh, and then we'll oh. leave it there. Whoa. That's an interesting uh, teaser. So you think about and that. I'm going to think about that. <laughs> and while I am doing so, Edith, Take us home. Nous nous aimions bien tendrement. Oh, me t'aime tous les amants. Et puis.